let me introduce you to inspiring entrepreneurs. Hi there, my name is Ben Gothard. My mission is to interview incredible entrepreneurs who are changing the world and present their stories to you, unscripted and unedited. From billionaires to Forbes 30 under 30 recipients to New York Times bestselling authors and much, much more, these people are living proof that nothing is impossible. Join me on this journey to learn from their experiences and become the person you're meant to be. Welcome to the Project Egg Show every morning at 8 a.m. Central. Five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. I'm super excited, as always, especially because we get to speak with R.C. Peck, a gentleman who wants to lead a movement of true financial clarity by showing people, that's you, and me, how to listen to what their money is trying to say to them. There's a better way. And it's on the other side of an unusual question. Let's end investment angst and get back to what our lives are meant to be. That's a hell of a movement. And he's doing so with a twofold philosophy. One, ruthless simplicity is where your power and edge are found. We've been taught to think the answer to financial greatness is in complicated solutions, and that's the farthest from the, to, the truth. And two, everything money can buy and everything it can't is found on the other side of knowing how to listen to what your money is so desperately trying to tell you to do. Now, you may be saying, what's, what sort of experiences does R.C. have? Well, he's been in business for over 20 years, founded in 1998, Fearless Wealth. He's been in business for over 20 years, avoided two market crashes, survived two recessions, and one real estate collapse. In addition, he's created thousands of blog posts, articles, and videos providing that clear, consistent message that there is another way when it comes to financial literacy. And he's invested 10,000 hours twice studying, experiencing, and analyzing money slash investing to know what really works. So without any further ado, please put your digital hands together and help me welcome R.C. Peck. How you doing today, man? I'm, I'm doing great. It's a good day. It is a fantastic day. You're right on the money with that, all pun intended. So let's jump right in. What is your story? I think my story is one of anger. Um, so first of all, males are not allowed to express anger. They're not, uh, especially if you're a person of color and a male, you're not allowed to express anger. So somewhere we were taught that anger is bad. Um, but, but, but here's the thing, I, I'm dyslexic, um, but I didn't know I was dys dyslexic my whole life. So, you know, I'm going through school, I'm doing school things. And part of me is like, why you're, you're not dumb, but why can't you spell sky? 
wait, is it ski? Wait, why would they have sky and ski be a Y or an I? Like who, who are these people? Like it was, it was so, I mean, it was so angering to me. Like I remember literally in fourth grade, we stood in a line and we went to the front of the teacher and she's like, um, I was not called RC growing up. I was called Ron. We can talk about that later when I changed my name, but she said, spell sky. I was like, oh yeah, got it. S-K-I. And it was wrong. And I just felt like so humiliated and like ashamed, but I couldn't, I didn't understand what was going on. Like I was so mad because I knew I wasn't dumb. I knew I was smart. And yet society or school would come back and go, it's a three letter word, you know, and skiing and sky, they're not even near as far as what you do with them. And so I think my story is really one of understanding feelings, which we're not taught to do. I'm a father of two kids and I only have one job with my two kids and that is to teach them to identify which of their four feelings they're experiencing. There's only four feelings on this planet, mad, sad, glad, afraid, that's it. Every other word is a variation of those four words, right? So if my kid says they're bored, I'm like, tell me more about feeling mad. Because bored is not glad, bored is probably not afraid, right? So we're probably sad or mad, um, but to have them first identify that. So I didn't know how to identify what was going on because I wasn't dumb. And yet, how can you not spell a three-letter word? And everyone else is crushing 12-letter words in your class. And it took a long time to figure out that, I have what's called a 3D brain. By the way, both my kids are dyslexic too. <laughs> but we learned at five and six years old when we, we put them through some tests, be like, do they have dad's brain? Um, so my story is one of anger, but not knowing what to be mad at, not being able to say I'm angry. And when humans aren't allowed to express their feeling, Right. And really, honestly, what's behind the anger is really hurt. Um, hurting people hurt others. Scared people scare others. Absolutely. You want to talk about someone who hurts someone. They're someone who's not allowed. They've been taught to not feel their hurt. So people who aren't taught to feel their hurt, they hurt others. So my story is one of, I want to know what's going on. What is going on? Like, I'm not dumb. And that's how it, that's how it came out. It didn't come out like I am smart. It came out, I'm, I'm not dumb. And it took a long time. Now, fast forward. And I'm now in this world of investing in money. Okay. People hate investing. They, they don't like, they love making it like the generating it and the making it. You think about all the podcasts and all the courses. It's about making it because if you make it, you won but it's only half the equation at best. In fact, the making it is actually the easier part. The keeping it is much harder. What I found is people who go to try to figure out the keeping it part, they're also having this dyslexic experience, right? They're like, but I earn well, but I got the degree. In fact, I got two degrees, uh, married well, got the house. I can tell you the square footage. I've got the job. I've got the income. What's going on? Like really lose my money, have your money get cut, cut in half twice. 
stock market crash in 2000, stock market crash in 2008, real estate crash in 2007 to 2012. You know, it's like, it's that dyslexic, but they didn't know they were dyslexic. Like no one taught them. You've been completely misinformed how money works. Completely used the wrong language, used the wrong stance. You think you got to make it before you keep it. That's completely opposite. We actually have to keep it before we make it, which sounds weird. So when you ask that question about story, you know, the nice way is, ah, I was frustrated. No, no, I wasn't frustrated. I was really angry. I was a very sarcastic kid. I have no idea how I did not get beat up. I'm not kidding. Like never been hit in my life. Super sarcastic kid. But I always knew when to maybe pull it back a little bit because there was just this anger. Um, and so it's really a story of learning oh, these are the four feelings. You have that feeling. Anger is almost never the first feeling unless you're being chased by something. It's really hurt. But then we get into really deep conversation because people, especially adult men people, they do not want to talk about hurt at all. At, at all. Um, so it's really the, the coming home was figuring out, oh my gosh, have dyslexia, no wonder, no wonder. And then seeing that happen in people's investment world and money world go, oh, they're having the dyslexic experience. Oh, I got this. Here's the math, this is what you do. Their anxiety goes away, their stress goes away, their overwhelm goes away. By the way, their net wealth goes up. So it's really, it's really a story of self-discovery and then wanting to just give that to people. I love what you just said about self-discovery. Um, one of the things that I just did two Sundays ago was I got this big roll of paper and I opened it and it was blank paper. I took a pen and I just started writing. And my goal was to identify for myself what the philosophy of life is or, or, or what my philosophy of life is. And after pages and pages and pages, I mean, not technically because you could just keep rolling, but you know, columns and columns and columns of, te of text, hours and hours of writing. What I discovered was that at least for me, the true purpose, the true purpose is self-discovery and understanding who you are at your core at the most fundamental level. So that to me is very interesting that, that you would bring that up. And it's also very interesting to me how you're coming from a place of financial literacy and also from a place of emotional intelligence. And if you ask most people, they would probably say those are two very different worlds. So I'm really interested to know you, you, you had all of this, all of this emotion but it seems like it was bottled up for a very long time. But what were you actually doing in, in the day-to-day? -day? Like, like, where did you go? What did you do? What experiences did you have that took you to where you are today? So one, one thing about dyslexic brains, which they're actually more of a feature, but you got to know you have the feature. Because if you don't know you have the feature, then it is a bit of a learning disability in 
19th century education, which most kids are getting pushed through. So I'll give you an example. In, um, I was raised to be an artist. I was raised in a house of women. So I have two older sisters and they always had a bunch of friends over and my dad worked all the time and was always out of town. So <laughs> literally there's this boy in the Midwest being raised in a house of girls and then, and then women. And myself and my two sisters, we were raised to be artists. Uh, so there was lots of paper around, lots of pens, pencils, a lot of that artistic stuff going on. So I figured out in high school that I went to a really big high school with a lot of money. I figured out that I could get an A in any art class in the school. So, and I didn't have to take gym because I was a soccer player, so I can get out of gym. So I took all these art classes because I could get an A and at least then the highest GPA you could get was a 4.0. And I stuffed <laughs> my four years of high school with every art class. And when I went through all the art classes, the art teacher started making up classes for me because they're like, we need to give our C more, like, you know, we'll, we'll do a one-on-one -on -one or we'll do this, or we'll do a portrait. Um, and a lot of times they had asked at the end, like, can we, do you mind if I have your art? Like, can I take all of it? Um, so like uh, unconsciously, I was like, wait, good grades, help you get better college acceptance. English is reading. Words are incredibly difficult for my brain. I, again, I didn't have the conscious words for this. So it's like, I can't read. I took the SATs once as a sophomore and got an incredibly low score, but I could get a high GPA. Um, so let's, let's go that way. And I never wrote in high school. Uh, luckily, my mom was an incredibly fast typer, <laughs> so I dictated every paper. And a lot of the classes, for whatever reason, you could write a three-page paper and up your grade a third. So if you had a B minus, it would go to a B or a B to a B plus. So I would sit down with my mom and we'd crank out six or seven papers, these three or four-page papers, because I take my C to a B plus. And so... I started, to, again, it was unconscious. Like, I didn't know, like, okay, I've got this learning thing. We're going to attack it this way. It was just like, there's this game. And it was, it, it was always like me against them. Like, like I'm going to prove to the school that I can get a 3-5 and get C's in science. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, but, but they weren't against me necessarily. They were just living 100 years ago. You know, here's the information, read it, and then we're going to, you know, test you on what you read but they were all in letters and sentences and paragraphs. And, and I was like, and that, that was the thing that I think a lot of people are going through with their money and their investing and their net wealth. They're like, but I'm not dumb, but I did this, but I did that, but that's something's wrong. And so they're, they're pissed off, but you can't, whoa, 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 but you can't do that. You can't be angry, especially if you make two, 300,000 a year, or even a hundred thousand a year, those people are really not allowed to be angry. And yet, they're scary. So I even forgot the question, but the way I, I took, again, still didn't know I had dyslexia was like, I can create. I was raised to be an artist. By the way, I saw what artists made. So I know I didn't want to go down that path. One of my sisters went to the best art school in the country and the other one went into the fashion industry. I was like, 
I'm going to take my art and put it into business because that seems to be the most financially or the highest probability of where my art can create uh, financial certainty. So you were in high school, you were playing the game or figuring out how to, how to do the best that you can by, by the school standards, of course. And then what did you do when you graduated? I continued. I, so I went to a small school in Illinois, Augustana College. Um, like I had figured it out from the standpoint of I can probably get a B. And I really just need a B to not have grades be an issue. So I figured out again how to do the B thing. And I was an Asian studies major, which, by the way, Midwest Illinois boy. Asian studies, late 80s, none of that makes sense. None of that makes sense. Yeah, why'd you choose that? So imagine there's so much randomness in life. So me going to Augustana College had as much to do with Linda Johnson <laughs> as it did with, oh, I can fill out this paperwork. Um, imagine ev- the best teacher in every subject at a college for whatever reason, they all were like Asia files. They just loved, they just loved Asia. One loved Japan, one loved Taiwan, one loved China, one loved Hong Kong. They loved the Southeast Asia, but you know, geography, history, English, social studies or the equivalent of it. They got together and they built an Asian studies program, I think maybe the year before I even started. And so I went to Asia and I, by the time I was 19, I'd probably been to 20 countries. Um, I was raised in a very unusual way by working class parents. They, we were very working class, but my dad did this thing, which is really funny. He would, and both my parents grew up in, let's call it dangerous households. Um, every year he'd call Apple Travel, okay, the big travel agency in Illinois. And he'd literally be like, uh, what country's on sale? Yeah, w- which country? Oh, 79 people murdered last year? Yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll go there. So no joke, when we went to Egypt the year before, now this is working class salary, but guess how much Egypt costs when 79 Swiss people are murdered the year before? <laughs> it's pretty cheap. Yeah, I really don't know. I can't even guess. <laughs> so we would go to these crazy countries. Like we went to Belize, not long after it became Belize and used to be British Honduras. And it was kind of sketchy. You didn't really, but you know, the woman's like, Hey, Belize is on sale. Things are kind of unstable there. So these two Midwest people took their three kids to these crazy countries. And so I started seeing like, wait a second, I'll give you an example. So when I was in China, someone said to me, why do you cut trees down and watch them die? I'm like, no, I don't think we do that. He goes, like, it happens at the end of the year, I think. I'm like, oh, Christmas. He's like, I, I don't know what it's called, but you cut a tree, like, and then you decorate the tree and then it dies. I was like, to get exposure to different brains and different cultures and not like, and look, I'm not diminishing someone who takes a vacation to Cabo San Lucas and goes from house to airport to air-conditioned car 
to $30 million, like a state hotel, like they're still going to get a little bit of Mexico in it, but we did not have money to go to those. <laughs> so we would get like the, oh, this is the place we're staying. This was the local hotel. Um, but my brain got shaped differently. I was like, oh, wait a second. We call that Christmas. Here's some guy in central China who's not trying to be, he's just like, I read this thing where like you cut trees down. I was like, it starts changing the shape of your brain. And that started at Augustan. Well, it started with my parents, right? These crazy parents who would take, drag us. It wasn't really dragging. It was pretty fun. And Augustana, I didn't know, but they had that Asian studies program. And I had always vacationed, traveled with my family to kind of the, the North America and the Europe part. Uh, and my brain never went to Asia. And so then I got there. I was like, do people know about this place? <laughs> <laughs> it is so different. I ended up living in a bunch of different countries, but the step away from school was a step into Augustana College. But like I'm telling you, the Augustana College I went to, there was 600 kids who went at the same time went to a different Augustana College who got drunk seven nights a week and their, their brain maybe left Illinois but didn't leave the time zone or maybe it hit one of the coasts. And by the way, I'm not diminishing that. I'm simply saying I went to a very different school because of how my brain was designed and what my parents were kind of doing, <laughs> doing for me be before we got to Augustana. And it just, it further accelerated. I still didn't know I was dys dyslexic, but it further accelerated the, huh, we put flowers on dead people's graves. They put fruit. And yet you hear Americans judge Chinese like, oh, what are you going to? One of the dead ancestors is going to eat the orange. It's like when ours starts smelling the flowers. Like, so you lose the judgment and you get curious. Once you left college, you say you lived in a few different countries. I want to know the journey from college through those countries to when you started Fearless Wealth. So I was, and we can come back to this, but I was very self-righteous. I was very self-righteous. And by the way, not a good trait. Um, so I also was not worried about being able to make money. Um, I am an exceptional saver, <laughs> which I don't use the word save when I work with my clients. I don't use, I use very unusual words, but I learned how to transfer a lot of my present day wealth into my future. It was just this, most people would call that saving. So I learned how to do that very early on. It's just, it was fascinating to me. Get out of school, so self-righteous. I'm not going to work for a corporation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get a company to hire me, send me to Asia, let me travel all over intra-Asia for them on their expense account, and I get to just party. Not, I don't mean like party as in like, you know, go and drink, but like you're sending me to Korea and like, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm like, no, I haven't been to Korea yet. Like, let, let's figure out Korea. Um, and so out of college, my parents had moved while I was in college. I moved to their house, which I probably would not have moved home if that was the house I was raised in, but I wasn't. 
So I moved to that place. There was a separate country in the United States called New Jersey, very different from Illinois. And literally when I got there, <laughs> I put a flyer in like 50 mailboxes and simply said, it was something pretty edgy. I didn't necessarily mean it to, but it's, it was something like, there's certain things your husband won't do for you. <laughs> I mean, this, this tells you my state of mind. Back <laughs> it was 23, but I will. And then I listed it like, I will build shelves. I will paint rooms. I will do the things you know he's telling you to do, but he really will never do. Like, <laughs> but this was like who I was. Like, like, like I said, I can't believe I never got hit or slapped or anything by myself, but I always knew for whatever reason, how to like get right to the edge where I thought, to me, I thought it was hilarious. It is hilarious. That's awesome. If, if the stay at home wife saw this or husband is like, if that doesn't make them laugh, I don't want to work for you anyway. So I, I did that and I bought true story. I bought a time life book on how to build shelves at a garage sale for a dollar. And I was like, how, how hard can shelf building be? Okay. And it, I understand there's a lot of arrogance in that too, but I was like, I don't know. I got a time life book from 1978. Like I'll just do it. Now it was all visual, right? And I'm, I don't know. I have a dyslexic brain. So visually doing stuff was a slam dunk for me. So I worked and built shelves in high net worth houses a year, maybe. And my pitch was, they, I'd, I'd come in, I'd present myself well, but my pitch was, so what's going to happen is my competitor's going to come in. They're going to look at you. They're going to look at your house. They're going to look at you. And it's going to be $12,000. Um, I live in the neighborhood. Um, I can do the exact same thing for $5,000, which by the way, was a $4,000 profit in seven days because there's only a thousand dollars of material. I could figure that out very quickly. So I was like four grand a week, four weeks in a month, 16,000. That's 200 grand cash. If I wanted to continue working, I'm like, all my friends had corporate jobs at like 38,000 a year. You know, woo like I was like, I don't want to work at AT&T, whatever, whatever. It sounds horrible. And so literally, I unknowingly, I turned on the dyslexic brain and <laughs> my sarcasm. And I was like, oh, like, I, I got this. But I wanted to live in Asia. I had studied Mandarin. So I knew, basically, in the interview, as long as you know more Mandarin than the guy interviewing you, you're fluent. So I finally got a job interview from a, a small medical company whose attention pretty much stayed in the United States and only went to Europe. Wait a second. Wait a second. So, so you started building shelves for that whole year yeah. and you actually started making that money at, at uh, 23 years old. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. That is awesome. Edgy marketing, brilliant pitch. Okay, and so then after that year, that's when you connected with this with this individual. And I, and I didn't want to go into house building. I, I mean, I, I saw how it could be really well, but it's like, no, no, no. I love Asia. I had already spent two three-month periods there already. Um, it's like, no, 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 my life's in Asia. And when I spent the, I was, so I was 19, we were in China 
one year after Tiananmen Square. But I remember my month in China, in Hong Kong's China and Taiwan's China. So I actually spent two months in China, Chinese culture. I remember incre being incredibly calm and like, I don't understand any of the kanji, but I could, you could drop me in the middle of the country. I'm like, I'll be fine. I'll figure it out. I'll figure out where to get food. It just, and I had been to many European countries and I didn't have that level of calmness. So I wanted to get to Asia and I wanted someone else to pay for it. <laughs> so, so a company finally hired me because I spoke more Mandarin than all of them. Um, by the way, it was six men, which I'm sure this interview was illegal even back in the 90s. Six men, the owner, the presidents, the VPs, sales managers, just peppering me with questions. And I was literally on a swivel chair. I'd be like, uh-huh, yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, yeah, I, you don't do that in Japan. I would just <laughs> for an hour. I'm 23. Um, or maybe I'm 24 now. And so they hired me to go to Asia and be the representative of this company. Uh, and I, I did it. And, and I loved it. But, and here's, here's something that happened to me. I got everything I wanted at 25. Let me be clear about that. I had more money than I could spend. Um, right, so we think as 20-year-olds, even people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, like, well, it's money to make me happy, and if women like me or whoever you're attracted to like me, and then, or whatever they are, and so here I am living in Asia in the mid-90s, making money that a 40, 50-year-old would be making um, on an expense account the whole time, flying business class around intra-Asia. Again, this is before Asia really took off, and I'd be in all these five-star hotels. I'd be in a room with neurosurgeons, medical physicists, owners of hospitals, and me. Um, but I happened to be representing the number one stereotactic radiosurgery medical equipment in the world. Like this company was founded by MIT and Harvard people. Um, and so I'd come in with this incredible credibility of representing radionics, but I was with literally the smartest people in India or Bombay or, you know, where Shanghai, where I'd be. And it, it, and it just, it didn't affect me that they probably spent 14 years in school and I was taking art classes. <laughs> it, it just, I was like, you did it your way. I did it my way. And we're still in the same room today. Um, and so I got everything I wanted. I got all the traveling I wanted. I had beautiful women who wanted to, to date me. I had more money than I needed. And I, I hated myself. I hated myself. Why? I call it biting the rabbit, right? I bit the rabbit. And so I've never seen a dog race where the dogs chase the metal rabbit that goes around. But it's like I grabbed the metal rabbit, right? And I went back to the, the paddocks, wherever the dogs go. And I said to the other dogs, the other greyhounds, guys, it's metal. No, no, that thing we're chasing, it's metal. And they're like, no, it's not. No, it's not because we're all chasing it. So if it was metal, we'd be crazy. And by the way, one of the things all humans are not allowed to feel is being crazy. 
So if something ever gets presented to someone and they have the experience like, well, I'm not crazy. And it'll probably show up as that I'm not stupid. Well, then you're stupid. And so I was like, I bit the rabbit. I grabbed the rabbit when I was in Asia, right? I had, um, you know, the money and the travel and the lifestyle of what you would expect would make you happy, right? I mean, th these are the videos we see when people promote their, their webinars online. They show the the house and the beautiful wife and the plane and the cars. I had all of that. I didn't have my own plane, but I was flying sec, uh, business in first class. And I, and I hated myself. And I realized something's really wrong because I have everything society told me that would make me happy. And yet here I am living in Asia, a life most people would want. And I just don't like myself. And so, like, the, the, the luck of having that at 26 and not 56 or 86 of going, something's really wrong. Like, something's really wrong. Um, I left the job and did a deep dive in two things, looking inward. Because I had not really looked inward. I had started this idea, um, two older sisters, my, my one older sister came home one day from high school. She said, oh, I talked to my counselor. I'm like, well, what do you mean? She's like, I, I sat down and I just talked to him. I, I want to I talk to someone. Like I knew in high school, because I really hated myself growing up. I, I want to talk to someone. So I went to her counselor and sat down in the chair. <laughs> so it's hilarious. I just sat down and I'm like, And in my brain, I'm like, wonder when the talking's going to start. Like, you know, when? But he was just looking at me. He's like, do you, how are your class? I'm like, oh, they're fine. Do you, are you worried about college? No. Well, we're done here. So, but, but for whatever reason, my sister knew how to talk to him or get conversations going. So the, the idea hit my brain as a teenager I didn't know it yet that there were outside people who could help me. And after I bit the metal rabbit in my mid twenties, I came back home. I said, you know what? I love Asia, Asian studies major, but you know, I don't want to live in Asia. I actually want to live. So I immigrated back to the U S immigrated back to the U S said, I'm going to come back to the States. I want to really figure this thing out. Now, incredible saver. Paid, I paid a third of my college. All my loans were paid off. I didn't need a car. I literally just moved back to my parents' house, did all of their house maintenance. They had like seven sets of shelves <laughs> in their house. I was like, I want to live for free. I want to sponsor myself and I want to do a deep dive inward. I didn't use these words, but I was like, I got to figure this out. And so my other passion other than Asia was investing. I wanted to figure out how... My dad, who was gone all the time, I don't know what we made, but working class Midwest 1980s. And then Brian Roos' dad, I remember one year, and he said it with just such clean energy. He's like, oh yeah, my dad made a million dollars this year. I was like, I don't, does he run a country? Like, I, what, <laughs> a million doll hairs? Like, I mean, literally my brain was like, I think my dad makes 50. 
your dad makes 20 times. Oh, by the way, I see your dad around a lot and I never see my dad. What is, what? Like, what, what, I don't, I don't even know what you're saying right now. Like, I, I don't even get what's going on. Um, and we grew up in a rich town, but we were working class. So I was just, I would go to friends' houses that had 12 and 15,000 square foot houses. Like you'd walk through caverns and I'd be like, this is really weird, but I don't get what's going on. So I had this passion for money. So when I came back from Asia, I took a deep dive meditation. Uh, I got introduced to Vipassana meditation in the nineties. Um, and I really just started looking in and going, I really don't like myself. <laughs> you know, I, I just, but I want to. And I was like, oh my gosh, people do stuff. So others will like them or love them more than they like and love themselves. And it took me a long time to figure that out. Like, and by the way, I, I'm fine if someone has a 15,000 square foot house. Actually, I'm not fine with it. I think it's really weird. Um, and by the way, I have some great clients who live in really big houses, but like, what's going on behind having a 15,000? Like, I really see it as love me. Look at my, love me. Like, look at my house. Love me. Look at my house. Love me. Did you see this? Let me, oh, I happen to mention square footage. Love me. And this is super deep stuff. And this is going to be pretty unpopular. Probably what I'm saying to a lot of people. There's going to be a lot of no, he's wrong. There's nothing wrong. You're right. There's nothing wrong with a 15,000 square foot house. But if it's because you have 19 kids, um, that's fine. And so I was like, oh my gosh, if you don't love yourself or if you don't like yourself, you can fly business in first. You can have the cars, the attractive partner. You can have all the things where the world's going, I mean, did you see his car? He is the E or the X or the whatever. It's like, but, I, but because I was able to step back and because I had this weird shaped brain and because my parents sent me to all these different countries as a young kid, I was just like, I don't like myself. I think that's the thing I want to work on. And I want to work on it with the vehicle called money because I realized that people have everything backwards about money. Um, like you got to make it first and then you invest. No, you actually start investing first. And then the making comes easier. Um, so I use the vehicle of money and investing because it got me to understand the behavior of humans so much faster. You can't lie as easily with money as you can about health or relationships. You can lie about relationships because it's hard to tell if it's actually a good one or not. But if you look at someone's net wealth, that is what it is. And I'm not saying a higher net wealth makes someone better, but it's this clarifying vehicle where you can just learn so much more about yourself. So you go through this journey of going to Asia, living the dream that you thought would give you whatever feeling or, or, or happiness or sense of accomplishment or whatever you were chasing at the time. You get it. You bite the metal rabbit. 
you're like, oh, no, this isn't what I want. You come back home. You're like, okay, I'm going to build some shelves. I'm going to live for free. I'm going to figure this out. And then you have this epiphany of I'm not really the biggest fan of myself. And I want to work on that. And the way that I want to work on that is through money because you can't you can't really fake that. I mean, when you look at the when you look at the numbers, you you really can't fake that. So then from that point, what did you do? How did you start taking action on that? So when I came back from Asia, I never built another shelf again <laughs> because I didn't I didn't have to. I had I was I was officially retired. I figured out that what I had and what I was burning through it could get me to a hundred. Now, no kids, no house, no, but still it's like, okay, 26, 27, completely free from ever having to make money again at current lifestyle. And and just to be clear, this was from doing your building shelf business with the edgy marketing, which I still love, plus the the earnings from I, I was going in gotcha in Asia. So it's like, okay, I don't have to cover any expenses. I had a bag of money. I went around to every big box advisor that I could find. I lived outside of Manhattan. So I went to all the big names. I said, look, I want to, I want to figure this out. I'll pay you to show me how to figure out this whole money thing. Um, and of course, every answer was the same. Son, why don't you just give me your money? And I, I've already figured it out. You don't, you don't need to figure it out. Well, I didn't include this, but my parents had their life savings embezzled from them when I was a teenager. So when I was 19, I came home from college, probably on a break, both parents crying. And I'm like, which, I'm like, which sister? because I was worried that something happened to one of my sisters. Which was, <laughs> which was scarier than seeing my parents cry, which by the way, I'd never seen before or since. And like, oh no, no, your sisters are fine. I'm like, okay, we lost all our money. I'm like, <laughs> I wasn't laughing then. I was like, this is pretty bad. This is, this is pretty bad. I really thought, shit, I can't go back to school. That's what they're, they're telling me. I can't, like, so my brain's 19, life-saving stolen by my parents' advisor who they trusted and liked, who came to all of our birthdays and gave $100 bills. So fast forward seven years, I'm in rooms where everyone's wearing $1,000 suits. Um, them telling me, just give it to me. Uh, yeah, that's not happening. Um, and there's that sarcastic <laughs> guy, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't. Do, do you? Oh my god, they don't know. Oh my god, they don't know what either. Like, oh my god, this is a job for them. Oh my god, this is this is how they earn money. I want to talk to them about how to grow money. They keep talking like." Oh my God, they don't, okay. So I started looking at 
stocks and price charts when I was a teenager. Because one of our classes in high school for economics was we got to buy stock. And because I was that sarcastic 14-year-old, I bought Playboy stock. Um, and I made like $172. But I didn't do anything to make it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you can think and make money. So when I went around in my late 20s talking to experts, I was a scientist. Like, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I, you'd probably call me an investment scientist or a financial therapist. Those are probably the two closest things to what I actually do today. Those aren't really terms. Um, but what I real scientists ask questions, doctors want answers. I was like, oh, these are people that give answers. I'm like, I don't want answers. I, I, like, I do, but to my questions. I did everything. I bought infomercials on TV. I bought any workshop that came to town. And there were a lot because I was in the New York area. And I just started going to all of them and looking and I was, and I was a visual learner. So I started looking at price charts a long time ago. So I was like, should I just try and buy the thing that's just going up? Because you could, you could look at the price chart and you could see GE or whatever it was going up into the right. And so my brain's like, don't, shouldn't we just look at the thing that's going up into the right? Like, no, 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 the, the price to earnings ratio and the price to book ratio and blah, 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 jargon, 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 blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, I, I don't, using words I don't, I don't think you know what they mean, but I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. It, it, it's going up into the right, like, and so this was not going well. Like, I just, I, I didn't mean to, but I wore them out. And I was always shown the door or whatever. Um, I was like, I'll, I'll go figure it out. So I, I went through all of my money. <laughs> I lost it all. <laughs> Investing. I, I would go down to the commodity pits in the trade towers. Um, I would trade futures because it was faster. Uh, I was out of control. I was absolutely out of control. I was out of control. And I didn't know why. Um, and so I, I, I took that money and that really losing it in my 20s and knowing that the system was not actually designed to help me. And because I was a visual learner, I was like, you want me to buy whatever? And I'd pull up a price chart of it. I, they used to come in these thick books, They're like onion paper. Like I, I'd flip them like, it's going down. Why would I? And I, I, I would come to them earnestly. I'm like, why would I buy something that's fallen? Well, it's a, it's a value stock. I don't care what you call it. It's going in the wrong direction. No, no, no. This is turn around, jargon, 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 jargon. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I want to go north out of town. It's heading south out of town. And you're going to tell me somewhere it's going to turn around south out of town? It's kind of dumb. So I didn't get along with this industry. Um, and I started teaching this to groups. I was just like, I got it. I just, I had to tell people about this. And I got my first paid client in 1998. Like I just started putting my stuff together. I'm like, do you know this? <laughs> do you know there's price charts? Do you know you can actually see the line, you know, going in the direction you want it to? Do you know that matters more than anything? Do you know price doesn't lie? 
Do you know price determines the news? Do you know it's not bad news until price says it's bad news? Do you know it's not good news until price says it's good news? Forget the words. Missed earnings quarter, blah, under, it's like stock takes off to the upside. Well, that was good news because price determines news. People are like, no, 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 you got to get out of this. I'm like, it's going up. Yeah, yeah, but it's not going to go up. Are we, on, are we like, are we fighting right now? Like, but it is going up, but we're coming into a recession, but it's going higher. And so like the sarcastic, dyslexic, <laughs> angry 20 somethings, like I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you guys are doing here, but it doesn't seem to be helping me. And so I built this company called Fearless Wealth because what I felt most, and there's only four feelings our body can have, and we're always in one of these feelings, mad, sad, glad, afraid. And I was like, oh my gosh, when I was learning money, what I realized is I was in mad, sad, and afraid simultaneously. So imagine you have all three of those feelings in your body fully running at once every time you walk into a certain room of your house. How often are you going to want to walk into that room? I mean, never. You might accidentally go in there one time because you have to get something. But like what happens is people start talking and working on their money and they're literally having to manage madness, sadness, and afraidness simultaneously. And so I was like, oh my gosh, we're bouncing between these two types of scaredness. And I wasn't going to call my company like scaredless free wealth. (laughs) But like, there's this fear of it, of you missing the parade, right? Of the parade going by and you're not, you're not part of the parade. And I learned this term when I lived in Singapore called Kiasu. They actually had a cartoon called Mr. Kiasu. And, and, and Kiasu, is a, it's a Singlish word. It means the fear of losing out. And this is before FOMA and when things become jargonized. As soon as a, a term or an idea becomes jargonized, it's lost. And the whole experience behind it is lost. Um, And so I was like, oh my gosh, there's this fear of losing out. I realized that when I lived in Singapore, oh my gosh, that's what's going on with investing. They don't want to lose out on the new breakthrough Facebook of Brazil, whatever, whatever, using words, words, words. And so they have this fear of missing out, this fear of the parade going by. That's countered with the fear of actually losing their money, which it's, that's a new fear to humans. The the fear is really... I'm going to die or I'm not going to be safe. And so humans get pinged back and forth between these two fears in the world of money, more so than health and self, which self is all of your relationships in the world, including your relationship with you. And if you believe in a higher power, your relationship to that higher power, but it's, you're always the self with that. And so I was like, oh yeah, the fastest way to really learn this inner journey is through money. Oh my gosh, we're loading up all three feelings at once. No, no, no wonder people keep pulling the temple down on them. Oh my gosh, they go to a big box advisor and they know something's off, but they don't know what because they have dyslexia. They have like investment dyslexia, right? They, they earn well, but they're like, yeah, we lost half our money in 08, 09. Yeah, sometimes you just lose half your money. And like the person's like, I don't I don't think that's right. Like, I know you have the suit and 
even the ugly people in your office are beautiful. Like, but, but they don't know. They're 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 left in this like dyslexic like. But I don't know I have it. But something and, and it just you can just kind of feel it. And so I I, I took that learning. I, I started talking to people, um, young like. 27 paying me talking to people who are 47 and 57 years old. But again, going back to when I got interviewed for the job in Asia, like I was like, yeah, you're 47, a gorgeous house in Silicon Valley, but I can show you how to make sure you never lose half your money again. So I was able to hold this container with, with people much older than me. Um, and I'd call them on their stuff. Like, this one, one time, this guy, this is just, it's kind of funny. He bought a $180,000 Porsche. They had lots of money. And he's like, but you know, I, I could, I could get a, a Nissan 300Z. Yeah, I, I didn't really need to get the Porsche. I could get a, a Nissan 300Z. I was like, well, that's a lie. Now you're just lying to me. Like it was initially, like, I was like, no. And he got so mad. He goes, you, are you calling me a liar? I was like, not not in that sense but you're lying to me like yeah but man he's getting really mad at me I was like and I said to him the guy who would buy a hundred eighty thousand dollar German masterpiece is not the same guy who's gonna buy a Nissan 300c so you telling me you could I'm calling you on it because it's a lie and he got really mad and, and I came back the next week and I was like, I wonder how this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> he said to me, you know what? I realized what happened. You, you called me on my identity. It's my identity that bought the $180,000 German masterpiece. And when I said I'd go buy the Japanese, whatever, $30,000 thing, that, that you're right. And it took me about a week to realize what happened because I build, I, what I do is I build up a lot of rapport with people and then I burn it. If not, you know, if, if I need to. And so I was like, yeah, that was, that's an identity thing. And what I realized is I, I want the really nice car. I'm like, yeah, I know that's what people buy when they want the really nice car. But I just, you saying to me, you buy the Chevy, you know, the Nissan, let's just be honest. So what happens is people have conversations about their money that they've never had before. And I wasn't coming at him. I was just holding a tanner, like, not true. Um, because money is such a, money is the vehicle to figure out what really needs to work more or what's not working. And when you start listening to your money, like I give their money a voice and when they start hearing what's best for their money like if you treat your money well most people some you know a lot of people can earn it well but maybe they don't treat it when you tr also listen to it money money starts being like hey hang out you gotta come over to ben's account like get get over here like he listens to us um and so that was really the start of the company with this combination of this dyslexic, Midwest, sarcastic 
kid who could do better art than almost anyone, but couldn't take an SAT test to get into a school. And so it's this unusual combination, you know, that that just makes the results unusual. So you you started this company and you'd gone through all this training and you're figuring stuff out and you're realizing that the people who say they know don't actually know what they're talking about. And most people are trapped in this three-pronged emotional uh, prison almost. They may not even be able to articulate that. They may not even realize what's going on. And the best way to solve that is through the money, through having these conversations about the money and changing the way people are thinking. Like, like what's the deliverable? Almost every word we use loads up a picture, a sound, or an experience in our bodies unconsciously. So if I say to you, and not like conjoining words like and other, but if I say to you, um, man, that stock collapsed today. Okay, and let's say you own that stock. Um, I'm pretty sure your brain's gonna load up a sound, a picture or a gustatory feeling, very negative. <laughs> Something collapsing on you, some sort of collapse happening. So right then and there, our brain got hijacked. Now this is going on you know, below the surface. And so what, what people, what's happening to people is they've been taught to use words that absolutely scare the heck out of their brains and literally take the brain and put into what's called a sympathetic, puts it into the sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight. You do not want to be investing in a fight or flight stance, but guess what happens? People are in their sympathetic nervous system almost always when talking about their money. You do not want to be there, but the words that advisors use or big box advisors use or pick a month newsletter editors or companies use is they put us in this sympathetic nervous system. So when I train people and they say something to me, I'm like, stop, that's not the right word. So from now on, you're never allowed to say busy to me. Never allowed. This is actually one of, I'll give you one that is incredibly powerful. This, this one shift changes people's lives, just this one. I say, every time you want to tell me you're busy, I want you to say I'm scared. Think how this goes with men in their 50s from the Midwest. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So you come to one of my coaching calls and you say, yeah, I, I uh, and by the way, these are people who run companies or make hundreds. Yeah, Ben, I was, I was busy. I only got half of it done. Okay, so um, that's not true. And you remember last week when I told you you're not allowed to use the word busy with me? Yeah, I was serious. So do it again, please. Um, yeah, so yeah, you said, yeah, I guess uh, I'm scared. Okay, um, getting closer. Could you actually do it the same energy when you came at, 
hitting come at me. When you just, ah, I'm busy, I'm a busy guy. Just do it the same way. I only do it if I have a lot of rapport with them, okay? Because I don't want them to leave. So I like, it's how did I never get hit with like my sarcasm? Like, so I'm like, okay, I can do one more with him. Um, RC, I was scared. That's why I didn't do my homework. Okay, thank you. And then I move on. I don't talk about it again. What happens is if you don't properly identify the feeling, which we've been taught by the way to not do, right? No, 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 no. You're not scary. You're not scared, Ben. You're busy. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, let's have a busy, you know, porn off. Like who's busier more? Like it's, 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 it, it, and it really triggers me. Just like when the guy told me he'd buy his 300 Z, like I knew immediately, I'm like, okay, now this is gone. So what happens is my clients, they'll, they'll change the language and they'll say, so what I'm owning is going up and to the right. Oh, you're right. Um, rather than like, I'm crushing it or I made it's like, if we can get clean terms that does not trigger the brain, by the way, by the way, for most people up and to the right is a pretty clean, <laughs> is a pretty clean phrase. Um, but like, I don't use the word conservative or moderate or aggressive. And because those are, that's jargon. Like, what does that mean? Oh, I've been really conservative the last nine years and I've had all my money in cash. So now I, I don't do this until someone, we have this agreement because if you give this type of coaching, it bounces off them. And so I'll be like, well, could, could you say it again, but not use the word conservative? And so what happens is we keep moving, we keep moving, keep moving. And then what they'll get to is, yeah, I got scared after 08. And because I was scared, I went to cash and stepped aside. I was like, okay, well, at least I got the scared word in, but they got to it and I didn't. And then I'll say to them, there's never stepping aside. You can never step aside from investing. It's, it's an idea that a big box advisor told you. Because what they do is they step aside to this, this, this sub-asset called currencies. And the, 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 the biggest currency on this planet today in investment terms is this thing called the US dollar. And in some form or another, the US dollar has been around 243 years. And we know it has a long-term track record of negative 3% a year. And so when someone changes their language from, I was conservative and you know, didn't want to lose money again. And it changes to, I was scared. And so I put all of my money in the US dollar which has a long-term history of losing 3% a year. And I'm always invested at all times. That person, they can start making changes because now they're like, well, I can't step aside. And I'm not conservative or moderate or aggressive. I'm scared. And I don't know if you know this, but there's been fMRI studies done that if the human says the word they're feeling, they can see it in brain scans. Literally, the brain just, oh, it just calms down. So there's, there is science behind this. So that person saying, I'm scared, and then saying, I'm going to go put 100% of my stock market wealth into U.S. currency units of wealth. That's not that smart. 
But now we're having a completely different language. Their limbic system is calmed down. Their amygdala is not triggered. Their sympathetic nervous system is not triggered. It's just like, I can't get triggered by saying up and to the right. So now we're actually able to have a conversation for the first time in some people's lives where they're not mad, sad, and afraid at the same time. A lot of times they may be angry at me, but I'll, I'll, I'll do anger. Like meaning, because I know, I know they're not angry at me. They don't know me well enough to be angry at me. I'm simply, they're, they're simply being allowed to be angry. And remember what's behind anger is really hurt. And so literally between them changing their words, those words load up different unconscious images, sounds, and gustatory feelings. All of a sudden they're like, I just, I can't get anxious around the stock market. I just, Arcea, I'm not having overwhelmedness. I sleep better. Yeah, because we literally rewired rewired the brain, we changed the words. And I have a, a, I have a pretty deep background in NLP. And so when you change the words, you, you know, words create worlds in our, in our brains. And so you change the words and their worlds change. And so no anxiety, no angst, no overwhelm, no stress around your money. And most people be like BS, but they're using words that create mad, sad, afraid all at once in their body. So you come in and you help people properly identify how they're feeling in regards to money, help them properly label what they're feeling, help them reprogram themselves and their minds and their language to more accurately assess the reality of the situation. And then how do you go from that point to making positive change and sending them on an upward trajectory? Think of the life force that gets taken up by all that financial trauma-like stuff going on in the body. And, 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 and the critter brain right back here, it doesn't know you're not being attacked by a tiger. All it knows is cortisol levels are going up, um, sympathetic nervous system, I'm, I'm, am I gonna fight someone or am I gonna run? Like it doesn't know it's 2019, it could be 30,000 years ago. And so what happens is all of a sudden like, first of all, they have more money, right? And they have all this extra attention because all that was going to the angst and the overwhelm and, and, and the fear and the anger. It's like, it's just not there. Like cleaning out that mental trash. Literally the, the head trash. And, and we, we use the vehicle called money because it's such an accelerant, right? You can't hide. What happens is they become what I call bigger difference makers, right? So I believe that everybody wants to help others and they want to do more of it. Right. So whether it's being a bigger difference maker to your cause or to your community or to your family, well, the person that has a million probably has more big difference makerness than someone maybe has a hundred thousand. Okay. But it's not just the money. The person who has the capacity to not have to stress 
or be overwhelmed or have angst around their money, they usually make more of it. They usually start giving more of it away. And so they become what I call these bigger difference makers because this, this whole like third of their life, our lives are our health, our wealth, and our self, right? So the wealth is the easiest trackableness. And so all of a sudden they're like, I'm going to give more to the church or I'm going to do more with the big brother, big sister, or I'm going to be there more for my kids, or I'm going to teach my kids how to identify their feelings first. What are you feeling? Okay, where are you feeling that? Okay, breathe into it. That's all I do with my kids now. Almost. But, but so, and, and that's a big thing for me being a, a, a good father and a better father over time. There's no peak to that mountain. And so what happens is they, they, they get transformed and they are more available for their daughters and their sons and their spouses and their nonprofits. That's huge. That's huge. It's giving them, giving them more, more space, more, more control and, and, and more clarity over, I guess, control over their lives, but clarity to then choose where they want to apply that freed up mental bandwidth. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's literally off putting at first. Right. So you have a boom box <laughs> next to you. You have a big radio next to your ear blaring for your whole life. And then it gets turned off. And at first it's a little weird. Um, but then you're like, oh, wow, I have so much more capacity to connect with people, with myself. Um, hey, I'm going to go do more. I'm going to go volunteer more, or I'm going to get healthy, or I'm going to stop eating sugar. Like, these are all things you help yourself, you help others. Um, and so the impacts, it's, it's, it's noticeable. I love that you use the word connect more because I feel like connection is a bedrock of humanity on, on various levels, right? Connection with yourself, connection with others and many more than just those two. Uh, and I'm interested in learning What's your philosophy on developing deep, meaningful, and genuine connection with another human being? I've spent a lot of... <laughs> I wasn't raised to be a girl. <laughs> I was raised in a house of women or girls. So I, I would just say, I say a lot of things that men don't say, right? So... And I know we talked about this. It would not be com It would not be uncommon to have seven sophomore girls in my house and me in high school. So I, I still say things today like, "Hey, that's a nice outfit," <laughs> to like to like another guy or something. Or I'll be like, I, "I need to get an outfit. I need to put some good outfit on today." Um, and so, having two older sisters in a house full of girls or women, like, I'm like, I want some guy friends. And so I made a concerted effort in my life. Like I want to build good guy friendship. Um, and so I'll, I'll give you an example of, of where this happened. I lived in Silicon Valley for 19 years and I had this guy friend. He has two kids. I have two kids. Both kids are basically the same age. We're both married. And 
I loved hanging out with him. And, but what I noticed was I was the only one. I'm like, hey, another beer. Let's go hang out. Let's go mountain biking. Let's do, I was doing all of it. And finally, one day I'm like, I don't, this is not a balanced type relationship. And not a, I'm not talking tit for tat. I'm just talking this balancing. And I called him on it. And I called him one night. I'm like, you know, look, if we're going to keep this friendship and grow it, you need to step up. And, and you haven't. And look, everything we do, we have so much fun. We're both avid mountain bikers, have these huge bikes, you know, just would have so much fun. But I'm making it all happen. I no longer want to make it all happen. So if you want to continue to build this friendship, you're going to need to step up. And if you don't want to, that's fine. I just don't want to, I'm not going to put any more time into this. Uh, that whole conversation happened over about a half an hour. And he said to me, he goes, I just, you're wrong. I don't see any of this. I was like, okay, that's too bad. Um, and we, we finished the call. He either, I think he either called me that night or the next day. And he talked to his wife about this very unusual phone call. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, no, that's you. Mm -hmm. no, yeah, no, that's you. Oh yeah. No, he, no, he got it. Yeah, that's you too. <laughs> I think he called me the next day. He goes, um, no, I was on the phone, but I could, I could, you know, he's probably doing this. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a leg to stand on. You're right. I was like, okay. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like, yeah, I knew it was like, it was like, great. So he's like, yeah, so I will, I will now do my part. Um, so I have, those are my guy relationships. And I am, I have two sisters that absolutely love me. And my guy friends, they love me and they call me on my stuff. If they see me, whatever, they'll call me on. I'm like, Ugh. and when you get called on something, you usually, it's usually like, initial anger <laughs> but then it's like simultaneously you're angry you're right it's like both hit your brain you're right you're angry and so to me like i was willing to feel weird like i was listening to a podcast yesterday between two really well-known guys who have both of them have very very popular podcasts and every time this is so interesting Every time they talked about men loving men, these are guys who have done a lot of work on themselves. They still had to say, not, not, not sexually. No, 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 no. I mean, you, yeah. and I'm, I'm increasing the volume on this, like this backpedaling. Like they couldn't just say, God, I just, I love hanging out with men without thinking it was gay or weird. Like they had, oh, but not, not, you know, and you could hear the energy. I was like, Women don't have to do that. <laughs> they don't, you don't hear two women in a podcast going, gosh, I just, I love hanging out with women. But you know, I'm not a lesbian. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Like, but men still, it's, it's silly. Like we're so afraid and I, I feel it. And so like, I just, my best friend from high school literally called me yesterday. I saw, I saw, I saw his name, Jim was on the phone. I got right into it with him. We hadn't talked in a year, like right back in the 80s. 
And I am fully open and vulnerable. And I actually said to him, like, God, you know, last time I saw you, I did not like your dad. Like, what was going on with him? Like, and I told him, like, I've been so angry at your dad. He's like, oh, RC. And he made it, he told me something else that was going on with his dad. Like, I want to be able to have very, and I don't mean like, let's keep it real. Like, I want to be able to be like, hey, Jim, like, and we had this great conversation and like they're gifts. Like I actually texted him like yesterday was such a gift to talk to you. Like that's weird. It shouldn't be weird, but like I say weird things. Like I might, if we see each other in person, I'm like, Ben, nice outfit. You know? And I'll be like, thank you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so like, I just, I'm so committed and by the way, there's been many of these conversations that did not go well. Like, is he, did he want to go out with me? I'm like, what? Like, that's weird. So there, there have been times where they've gone sideways, but I'm just like, mm, didn't pass my filter or so that connection. I know it's, it's a big word these days to say vulnerable or to say authentic. I think, again, I don't use jargon because as soon as, even, even, and I have nothing against those words, but as soon as it becomes a term that everyone throws around, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Like I'd rather have someone go, I, I have something really scary to tell you. Or, I'm so scared to tell you that you need to level up. Like, oh, now we're speaking English to each other. Um, and so as soon as someone's like, yeah, be vulnerable. That's so authentic. I'm like, don't, don't use jargon around me. Um, you know, because when someone's being authentic, they're saying something that is really scary. So I'd rather have them be like, yeah, I was just, I was being really aware of how scared it was for me to say what I was really feeling about you. Imagine that going into someone's brain. Their brain goes, mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. But if that some, same person would have said something like, I just don't want to be authentic with you, you know, and let's have some vulnerable, authentic conversations. Like, why, what, where, where are we? Like, what, <laughs> is there, who, who are you talking to? And so, but I, as soon as I see it with money, as soon as I see it with investing, it's like, stop. I know how your money is growing. Like you can't do this. Look, you may be worth a gazillion dollars, but we're talking right now about this, this intersection called human behavior and money. And you're jargoning me. I don't do jargon. It has nothing to do with ego, whatever, but like, I'm not in. And so just your question is like, I want those deep, meaningful connections, right? Because in my twenties, I had everything. I had everything that people thought you're supposed to have to be happy. And I bit the rabbit and I was, I hated myself. And I was like, hmm. So I know that the, I think the number one thing for life expectancy, the number one thing for life expectancy is how many meaningful, loving relationships you have in your life. That's the number one thing for life expectancy. High quality life expectancy is num num number one, right? Genetics, I think, is two, and behavior is three. 
So again, going back to like, I just want to focus on what works best. Loving, connected relationships. Great, healthy, long life. Life is long enough. It is not, life is, I don't think life is short. I think life is, it's, it's long enough. We got a hundred years if we're lucky. And the more loving connections we have, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not like saying I'm the measure of anything great or I, I know how to do loving connections better, but what, just what I've noticed is loving connections. And if loving, because there's some men listening who are super triggered by that, the more, the more meaningful connections you can have with someone else, the better your life, the healthier you're going to be, the better dad you're going to be, the better son you're going to be, the better your money is going to grow. You want to grow your money like the weeds in your grandma's garden? This is the bomb. Um, and so I'm just I'm kind of an unusual person. <laughs> well, that's why I enjoy talking to you because I enjoy talking to people who have, who think differently. So I appreciate you uh, being willing to share that very openly. Next question I have for you, because I really like asking questions. What is your greatest theory? You said theory, right? That I did. My greatest, I believe we are raised by our parents' childhood. And that childhood created a being. Literally, it's in the DNA. Understanding that your parents' childhood created you, right? That's like, so if your parents' childhood was dangerous and unstable, you grew up in the county called stable and dangerous, even if your house was 10,000 square feet, because the, the DNA in there was built with stable and dangerous. And I think the deepest answers are really understanding We've got these four feelings and we're always in one of them. We're always in at least one of them. There's never a stage in our life where we're not in one of these feelings, mad, sad, glad, afraid. There's not 4,000 of them. There's four. Those feelings determine our behavior and our actions. And so if you can get down to just simplifying, just identifying them and doing it in a, in a normal way, not in a scientific way or weird language way or saying authentic or, or vulnerable, but using normal words like an eight-year-old would use, you can actually then start to accelerate your life. So I don't, I don't know what that theory would be called, but to me, it's the foundation of, of everything, right? So I have two kids. If one of them's like, I'm nervous about the test, I said, yeah, what are, you, what are you feeling? I'm feeling scared. Okay, um, yeah, where are you feeling that? Oh my God, in my stomach, and my throat. I'm like, okay, so breathe into that. I'll say to them, whose is it? Whose scaredness is that? Is that mine or your mom's? Because it's not his, by the way. 
And so, and, and again, I know how weird this must sound to so many people, but if you want to do great things in life, it's on the other side of identifying the feeling, locating it, breathing into it and, and, and be like, okay, I still have to go do it. But just by identifying and locating it and breathing into it, because breathing always brings you back to the present moment. Like when I did my Vipassana training in, in the nineties, if you're fully deep into your breath, you can't be anywhere else. Now it's for moments, but even for that moment for my son, he could just like, there's a moment where he's not scared about the future, which by the way, hasn't happened. Um, so it's, it's somewhere like the accelerated life, the better life. You want to grow your company. You want to get the woman or the man of your dreams to partner with. They're all on the other side of this, this, this it's, it's so foundational. Like if you think about it, wait, we're always in one of our feelings, always at all times. That's how our brains were designed, right? Am I going to be scared? Do I have to be sad, mad, or glad? It's mostly the scared thing. If you get wrong, you die based on brain um, wiring. So by default, we just get scared a lot because that has kept us alive for 3 million years or however long we are. So the, the theory would be somewhere around identifying that. And the easiest way to identify it is through money. And everybody has money and everybody has wealth and everyone has a net wealth. And we all start investors before we're earners. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing everything that you have and uh, sharing this time with me. It's, it's truly been a pleasure and an honor. I have one more question for you, then, uh, then we'll wrap it on up. I'm 24, and I really want to know, what question should I be asking you, specifically me, asking specifically you with your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience, that I just wouldn't think to ask? Did you ever see the commencement speech by David Foster Walker? I did not. Okay, that's, that's an absolute to-do for you. Um, he starts off his commencement speech talking about two fish swimming and a bigger fish swims by and says, how's the, how's the water, fellas? And the little fish swim on and they look at each other and they go, what the hell is water? <laughs> Um, by the way, I listen to that commencement speech once a month. Um, and so the question is, like, what's the water? What's the thing no one sees, but that determines everything? Like, you, you're a scientist and not a doctor. Doctors want to answer scientists, ask questions, right? So the scientist has questions. So it really does come down to the best questions. And most people are asking the wrong questions. Um, like they'll say, how do I best diversify in the stock market? I'm like, that's the wrong question. Diversification stopped working 20 years ago. Um, and so like, the answer is like, what is, what's the water? What's the thing that's so obvious no one can see, right? And, and it, it takes you down a path of starting to look like, 
wait, wait, everyone says diversification with investing. Oh my God, I just noticed that. I, I never realized that before. Wait, you're right, RC, conservative, moderate, aggressive. You have three choices, Ben. Are you conservative, moderate, or aggressive? Wait, that's one of those, how's the water? Well, hold on. That's, that's not the right question. Um, I traveled Turkey for a month uh, in, in the 90s. And I was on a bus in the middle of the country. And I was, I was scared. It was like eight Turkish guys and me at like 2 a.m. And one of them came over and broke in broken English and said, are you secular or non-secular? And I'm like, am I getting, like, am I going to get killed? <laughs> like, and I was like, I don't know what those words mean. I kind of know what they mean because I've been reading up on Turkey. And I said to him, I'm a tourist. I said, I'm neither. I'm a tourist. Right? Because I wasn't living into his frame. And so the question I want you to start asking is, like, like whose frame is that? Like, his frame was secular or non-secular. You go to talk to an investor, they're going to ask you conservative, moderate, aggressive. Oh, that's, like, you've got to ask, the, is that their water? What's the water? Like, I don't know what the exact phrasing is of this question, but it's stay a scientist. Know whose frame you're in. Are you in their frame? Right. And if you people give up their rights so much, it's, it's incredible, Ben. People are in, in the earnings world, they do so well. And then they go to the growth world and it's like they're seven years old. They're just like, yeah, that, that's what they said. I mean, their office is really nice. You should see the view. I mean, the views of the whole bay. Like they 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 for they they, they give up the wait, conservative, moderate, aggressive. I thought we were talking about money to be able to step back and go jargon alert jargon would my eight-year-old like my eight-year-old would have no idea what conservative <laughs> moderate or aggressive means so i often go back to like would my daughter know what conservative means so like look for the water is my answer well, again, RC, I want to thank you very much for for coming on the show today. It is uh, it's been very interesting and uh, very meaningful for me. So, so I want to thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me. Absolutely, and to everybody who's watching, listening, I want to thank y'all. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting the show. I love y'all very much, especially you right there. You know who I'm talking about. That's right, you. So, thank you very much, and uh, I will see you. <laughs>